Welcome to the Live Your Dance Podcast. My name is Molly King, and I'm a former corporate working girl turned author, dancer, and coach. Each week we come together to celebrate someone who has found their metaphorical dance and listen to their insights in order to inspire you to find and live your dance. Thanks for tuning in and joining me today. Now, let's dance. I'm so excited for this episode. We get to dive into the story of Ian's life and hear about how he came from being an orphan child in India, moving to the States, getting adopted, and how he came from a very dark period in his life and turned it around and is now back in India and has served over 200,000 people with his Foster Care India organization with the goal of reaching 70 million over the course of its life, if not more. Um, He shares with us so many different amazing insights, and I'm so excited to dive in. So let's get to it. Well, good morning slash good evening, and I'm here with Ian Forer-Pratt, who's an old friend um, from college and from school and He has now since moved over to India and is working with an organization that he founded called Foster Care India, and they have done some amazing work. Um, He has an incredible story, and I'm so excited that he's here with me, and thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Molly. It's it's a privilege to be able to reconnect with you and to be able to um, just kind of talk about some stuff and and share some experiences and and see where it leads. Definitely, definitely. Ah, this is so great. I've been following you online for a little while now, and it's been so amazing to see just the whole process of this idea of Foster Care India start to come to life and now to see it really having momentum. Um, I was actually just looking through your annual report and I saw that you've already reached 200,000 people and you've been working with UNICEF and I just I love this mission that Foster Care India has that of this or the idea that there are no unwanted children they're just unfound families and all it is is this piecing together of of need and supply and it just seems like it's it's a project that's very dear to your heart how did you even start start getting into this because I know I mean, I knew you back when you were in the States, and I didn't realize this was such a, a big part of you, but has it always been something that's been kind of percolating? Yeah, well, it's been um, a really neat evolution of thinking, actually. So a kind of like quick background on me is I'm actually born in India, so I was born in Calcutta in 1980. Okay. And uh, I was, a day after being born, I was abandoned by my mother, my birth mother, um, and we're not sure any information about my birth father. And so I stayed in an orphanage for a short amount of time, less than two months. Okay. And then I was adopted by an American family. Okay. Um, so my mom is from Canada, actually. My father's from the States. And uh, they're both living in the States, and they adopt me, adopted me as their first child. Um, and then four years later, they adopted a girl from <clears throat> the same orphanage, who was my sister, Anjali. So we're not biologically related, but we're both from the same area, same orphanage, everything. Wow. Um, and then they had two biological children after us, so we're a great mixed, uh, eclectic <laughs> bunch of four. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, and yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, it's a great 
kind of, uh, I had an amazing kind of middle class uh, upbringing outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And um, to get to kind of the answer of your question, I had always known that there were two things at least that were pretty clear to me. And the first was that I didn't want some connection with India, but I couldn't have uh, vocalized that to you when I was younger. Okay. Even up to maybe 15, 16, 17 years old, there was kind of a yearning inside of me, but I didn't have the vocabulary to attach to those emotions. I okay. just knew there was a some want sort. to have a connection of some sort. Huh. Okay. Um, and then the <clears> other thing that's been overt and very clear from is that I, I wanted to work with children and I wanted to um, just have some way of connecting children with the idea of family. That was always very clear. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And it, I mean, it makes sense coming from where you've come from and what a deep impact I'm sure that had on you to be taken in and brought into such a, a good family environment and then to be wanting to share that with other people too. Um, that's awesome. So... What tell me just a little bit on the background of you know how did foster care India actually become an entity a real idea how did you go from concept to execution So it all actually came from a Google search kind of <laughs> interesting um, in two thousand six two thousand five two thousand six. Um, it was becoming very clear to me. I, I had kind of like a dark time in life where I just didn't know. I, I felt very foundationless, drinking a lot, smoking a lot, just trying to figure out life in general. Um, and when I got my head clear from that, February 6th of 2006, actually, I decided to kind of quit drinking and quit smoking and really decide how, my, how I would be able to give back to the world. Hmm. Um, and around that time, I was thinking, okay, so I want to give back to India. I want to have a connection with children. What does that look like? <clears throat> so did a bunch of Google searches looking at health work with children, education with children, different things, and, um, and then started thinking about child protection. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was adopted. So adoption-wise, child protection-wise, what might I be able to help with? So leave that story there. The idea kind of percolated a little bit for a couple months, a little bit longer. And when I started my master's in social work at Washington University, okay. I was assigned a project on the disproportionate amount of African-American youth in the foster care system in the huh. U.S. Okay. So it was just like an arbitrary project. Like I didn't know it was going to be about this or whatever. Right. And the second I learned about foster care, it hit me. Oh my gosh. So what's going on with foster care in India? Mm. Because I could get on board with the idea behind foster care, the idea that every child has a right to family, and while they're waiting for permanency, why not be in a family rather than an orphanage? Yeah, or yeah. I was like, okay, I'm down with this. Let's see what is going on in India. And in the beginning of 2007, I did a Google search. I just wrote foster care and India. <laughs> and the thing that came up was how to adopt a dog or a cat. Holy cow. That's quite a wake-up call. Okay. So I was like, okay. Well, it's very clear. I should sell everything, move to India permanently, and start a foster care organization. <laughs> Is it, was it really that easy of a decision, or was it? Wow. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. It just clicked. So then I was like, okay, I think I should write a business plan, because I've heard business plans happen before businesses. <laughs> so I Googled how to write a business plan and sat at Starbucks on a napkin and started sketching out what I thought in my life. Oh, I've totally done that too, and a coffee shop as well. That's awesome. 
But it's one of the most energizing, exciting experiences for sure to start taking that vision and putting it down on paper. Ah, oh, that's yep. that's awesome. <laughs> okay, so what was? I mean, I'm sure you've had challenges all along the way. I mean, there's, you know, the bureaucratic systems or the paperwork or the I don't even know if India has its own, you know, can of worms that once you get over there, it's different. But what have been, you know, some of the biggest challenges that you've been facing? suggested there like coming over to India is such a different culture different experience that it was something that to me was foreign so the interesting thing was that I'm adopted from India this should be home yeah. and I didn't understand how everything worked so in the same emotion I felt at home and not at home mm. which was very 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 kind of like discombobulating for lack of a better word it was really difficult to figure out okay how am I going to fit in what's it going to look like um what American kind of socialized American things are okay yeah what um should I really what should I really honor and be about here and what came from that I'm really lucky to say was that when I came into this experience I said to myself I'm going full in mm-hmm. you know I sold almost everything I arrived with three bags of clothes in this dream And I said, okay, be humble, walk forward, learn, um, but be confident as well that this is the direction that I really felt about going, but honor local cultures and traditions, celebrate, you know, the practice of family-based care in Indian history and really, really, really empower people to come along together on this mission. Um, Because from the very beginning, I thought, okay, this work isn't for 10 years, it's for 10 generations. Absolutely. And so it helped those big challenges, which were many, many, many. The bureaucratic system that you mentioned, 100%. There's the sense of time much different in India than there is in America. Hmm. There were many days at the end of the day where I was just kind of crying and sitting there going, okay, what's next? How can, how can this unfold? Hmm. Um, but the humility and confidence together allowed me to say, okay, well, I signed up for this. Let's figure out some coping mechanism that's safe to get myself yeah. to be back on. Tomorrow's a new day. Absolutely. Um, speaking of, what were I mean? I I know that I've felt similar similarly at different points in my journey as well. Or I'm sure any entrepreneur going after an idea has those moments. So, what for you has been some of those healthier coping mechanisms that you might want to share with them? Well, some may argue whether this is healthy or not, but one of them is motorcycle riding, for sure. <laughs> oh, man, so, and around <laughs> India. Goodness. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Like, because it's just me and the helmet, you know? And so uh, it's not distractions. You can just, like, whatever whatever you think. Like, I just pray. I ride off on the bike. I pray. I just ride along. And all, like, every time I just get immersed by the beauty and life around me, and it kind of centers me. So that's yeah. one thing for sure. Yeah. Um, oddly enough as well is just watching like mindless TV shows as well. <laughs> I've got like reruns of all my favorites on my desktop, Friends and, and Big Bang Theory and all this just great yes. stuff that I've seen a thousand <laughs> times. Yeah. And I can put it on in the background. I don't even have to see it. And I can watch it like I bought a weight bench and I've got some weights in my room so I can put on Big Bang Theory in the background and, and lift <laughs> and kind of just be like, okay, and nothing else matters. I'm just here <clears throat> hanging out. <laughs> yeah, just get back so to basics. Those are some of them, for sure. 
I love that. I love that. Oh my gosh. I'm, yeah, huge Friends watcher. So I'm right there with you. That's awesome. Um, so one of the, one of the things that has come up, um, in conversations is that, you know, finding the work, which it seems like to me and, and tell me if I'm incorrect, but this is, it seems like this is very much your calling. It's not a job anymore. It's not, you know, something you're doing for the paycheck by any means. Um, but when you get to that point, you know, do you like your work every day? Does it feel fresh? Do you want to wake up every day? Or if not, how do you keep waking up and going after it even when the vision is unclear or when things are hard? You know, tell me about that kind of part of it for you. Well, it goes back to that mix of humility and confidence where there have been n number of times on this route so far since I hit the ground in India where the, the vision has expanded, changed, or went in a direction I could have never imagined. <laughs> so the answer to your question is for sure, like, I feel happy waking up in the morning. But, for example, a year and a half in, I had three months of very dark times, isolating mm. behavior. I had kind of a, a toxic work environment a little bit, a couple people with me that really weren't kind of gelling <clears throat> and working out. Um, and so in those times... I just kind of clung on to, to whatever I saw as a, a healthy light in my life. Hmm. So I've had some constant people in my life that I could just shoot an email to, even though I was isolating and I didn't want to talk to them. <laughs> I my own way reach out to them. I could send a mail, you know, I could like a Facebook thing, whatever. Yeah. That would happen. Yeah. Um, but the answer to your question, I think, is that we're human beings. Like, there are going to be days that we're like so excited that everything's fantastic. And there are going to be days where we're like, yeah, staying in bed would be fantastic. Right <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And doing this, those days can have huge like weight on them. Hugely oh wonderful days where things are amazing. And then, for example, recently, a month ago, we had trained all of the government officials in our district area on foster care. They were ready to go. This is the goal of my life, like, to get a foster placement. Mm -hmm. And then I woke up one day and heard they'd all been transferred. Whoa. So all the government officials that we'd spent all that time with and are ready to help us were gone. Dang. And so, I mean, yeah, like, there's a moment when you're just like, all right, what to do now? <laughs> Man. Um. But, but then, if you build some things in for yourself, you know, even little cheesy things, like you have a quote around that, like, rechecks you into stuff. Absolutely. Or, like, you know that somebody around you, you know you can go to them and, like, just sit silently in front of them and they're not going to push you. you just, yeah. Like, you need them. Those types of things I've, I've luckily built in for myself um, that I've been able to survive. Not, not that it's been easy all the time, but I'll tell you, to be honest, most days are absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and, 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 and it's unfolding in ways, as I told you kind of before the conversation, it's unfolding in ways I could have never imagined in this brilliant, brilliant way. Oh, that's that's so good to hear. And, I mean, that's that goes back to kind of this idea of, you know, when you find that thing that is so in alignment with who you are and what that inner... You know, like you were talking about that inner need or the, the calling or whatever that is, um, you know, it doesn't just affect the job. You know, it affects every area of your life. And I know that you've gotten married recently and I know that you have, it seems like a beautiful community now over there when you started from nothing, it seems like. Um, but how do you think getting into, 
the, this work that is so much you, how has that affected not just your work, but, you know, other areas of your life as well? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the holistic approach of life that you're talking about, right? Like everything is, is connected in some way or another. Right. And so as this kind of drive is pushed forward, to be very honest with you, I almost left a lot of the stuff behind hmm. because the drive was kind of all encompassing. And so what happened was that I made that my main focus. And actually those other pieces of us that are super important, relationship, balance, athletics, like whatever it may be in your life, activity, those things. For quite some time, I had a a pretty much zero healthy work life. Uh Hour 24 hours. Because in India, in the day, it's night in the U.S. True. And during the night, it's day. So then I would work all day, and then I would liaise with people in the U.S. all night. Oh, wow. And I lived alone. My office was in my house. Yeah, so there is no escaping it. Yeah, absolutely. I burned myself up completely until I was able to learn a little more. But that balance is needed. And when I was able to find that balance, and it was actually after that dark time that I told you about, about a year and a half into it, I actually was so cheesy and businessy. I did a SWOT analysis on myself, which basically I took a blank piece of paper, I made four boxes, and I wrote strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. <laughs> and the strengths and weaknesses were internal to me, and the opportunity and threats were external. Interesting. And when I wrote that list, I could come up with zero strengths for myself. Zero. Wow. It was an epic list of weaknesses where I ran out of the space in the box, and nothing in the strength. Hmm. And so I took a step, step back in my completely, like, work balancey, like, off-kilter life. Yeah. And I said, okay, it's not possible that me as a human being have only weaknesses. It can't be possible. Not possible at all. So I took a step back, and I circled the weaknesses that I felt were legit. <laughs> and made a plan to approach those weaknesses. Okay. And the two main ones were that I didn't feel like like I'm a good executive director, and I didn't feel like I had work-life balance. Okay, yeah, yeah. And for, for the executive director piece, I just wrote emails then to every executive coaching place I could find around, like the top ones, and I said, my name's Ian. Um, I'm wondering if you can give me pro bono uh, executive coaching because I can't pay for it right now. So some of the top companies wrote back and said, wow, this sounds like an amazing project. We're happy to give you one or two or three sessions or whatever. I met with some executive coaches. We clicked, and that pulled me out of it. And with that came the life-work balance. Holy cow. I love that. I mean, for so many reasons. First of all, I love, I mean, just the, the getting analytical on yourself. That's something I'm all about. And so to do a SWOT analysis on yourself was so... So, I guess, perceptive um, <clears throat> and to be able to actually see yourself in a subjective light, but then to see, oh, wait, <laughs> I'm not all weaknesses. And I think that's that's a big point for people because it's so easy to get caught in the, you know, I'm not worth anything. I'm not doing anything, even when you are doing good work. Um, but I also love that you then took that step and took action and contacted, you know, you're willing to do whatever it takes at this point and talk to people that may or may not be in your realm and say, I need help and I would love it for you to help me. <laughs> that's, that's really inspiring. And, and there's so many, 
that's the thing. There's so many opportunities if we're creative, like you, like you've figured out, you know, there, there are ways to get out of it. Even when we say we don't have money or time or resources, I mean, you absolutely are disproving all of those, which is so awesome. Um, so do you feel like kind of going back to your, um, coping ideas, um, what would you say, I have this idea of like a nucleus of support, the, the people or the things you turn to um, when things are getting hard, and you've kind of touched on a few of those, but what would you say um, would be your nucleus of support when times are really tough or when you're struggling? Mm. Um, so I would say that you know, my, my smaller friend circle of people that I've known for a long time, they're in the nucleus of support. Uh, for a long time, I really had a little too much ego thinking that I was the nucleus of support, mm. meaning that I could support myself, I'd be fine. If I isolated, I'd be able to figure it out, all that stuff. And I'm learning recently, I'm able to kind of break that down a little bit, that it's okay to go to other people for support and have that nucleus um, be a little vulnerable. Yeah, And so now my wife is definitely nucleus of support, you know, um, and different other people that I've kind of let in a little bit more as this journey has moved forward. As I've gained that more work-life balance and I've worked harder to be a a, a good executive director, these other things have come along with it, which have been fantastic. Mm. Um, And very oddly, Facebook has become a nucleus of support as well Mm. because I was allowed to share my journey with people in a healthy way because I've learned you know the ways that social media of course is used in an unhealthy way and the way that it's used in a healthy way and as I've been able to contact people and share this journey with others the reinforcement is fantastic people liking it and people following right and then subsequent conversations come that people say yeah we haven't talked in maybe you know three four five ten years but people know what's going on oh absolutely that's very empowering because I feel like then everyone's locking hands and moving forward. Oh, I love that. And there are so many arguments in social media that it's not a good thing and that it's time suck and it can absolutely be a distraction. But I also believe it can be a, it can be a leverage point. It can be a connector. It can be the reason why things are successful because good ideas have a place to then grow, which is, is clearly evident in your story, of course. Um, and there was something I was wanting to touch on. Um, oh, that idea of, of not needing to do it all yourself or not being kind of the center and the, I mean, talk to me more about, I guess, getting yourself out of the way. Cause it seems like that's a lot of, a lot of what's had to happen. Cause at, on some point you could have said, this is my view. Well, <clears throat> the interesting thing is that I believe that type of feeling, the feeling that it's not all me, is there within us all, but sometimes it's hidden. Mm. So a, a very a very clear example of that is when I was working with friends and brainstorming and coming up with Foster Care India's logo. It's a lotus flower. Mm-hmm. And in the center, I put a heart. And let me just explain a little bit why that is. Okay. And I didn't even know why I put it there <laughs> until after when I was thinking about, okay, now I'm letting go of ego a little bit and being really excited about that. Yeah. So the idea of a lotus flower to me is that the lotus flower sits on the top of stagnant water mm. and beautifully blooms. Wow. And how does it do it? It shoots its roots 
defined life, defined the nutrients through that stagnant water. And it doesn't matter if it's two inches, two feet, whatever, that lotus flower will send strong roots to find life. And so for me, that represented the populations that we're working with that are resilient no matter what. If a child has seen one second of trauma or 10 years of trauma, it doesn't change their ability to bloom and grow and blossom in the midst of something that might seem stagnant. And so when we set that logo, then the heart in the middle, I then attached values to everything. And the heart in the middle is love. But when I defined love, I didn't know this was happening. Our logo sits here and it's directly on my desktop. We love, we embrace a world in which all are respected and heard. And boom, before even thinking about, okay, is this ego, is not ego, whatever, the fundamental value to me of this entire thing was everyone's voice is respected and heard. Hmm. And so then when I thought to myself, okay, am I kind of like muscling through some decisions and saying, okay, this is the way that I thought it should be, and then getting upset when it's not that way? Yeah. Am I actually causing myself unnecessary problems <laughs> when if I talk to people about it and figure this out, then <clears throat> it could all move forward together in more strength hmm. and more sustainability and impact driven? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, then it'd be stupid not to do that. <laughs> and so then it kind of like grew just as this idea, just as this logo, just as the idea of love being at the center of resiliency in, in community. Hmm. And then I had no choice but to start putting away ego. <laughs> yeah, because if it's not in line with your, your core mission, then it doesn't right, belong. Absolutely. And I definitely don't want to be that. No. So then I was like, all right, <laughs> let's, let's just kind of like follow the direction that it's all heading. <clears throat> oh, that's awesome. I love that. And I love that the the vision is pulling you into the best version of yourself, it seems like. So if uh, you well ever... Put, very well put. I think that's exactly what's happening. Oh, that's, that's awesome. And I... I, that's what I believe goals should be. They should be about not necessarily the accomplishment, but about who you have to become in order to, you know, manifest that goal. And so for you to reach your goal, oh, I think it's reaching 70 million families or people. Yep. So, yeah. So we have, we have like the, the state that we're in right now is 70 million plus. And so we're starting with the state. Um, <clears throat> okay. and, the, and our goal is to, to help a, a country of one two plus billion people look differently at the way care and protection of children is done. Oh my gosh. I love that. Was it ever, I mean, that's a big vision. That's a lot of people. Was it ever daunting? I mean, the first time you wrote that down or thought about what if I could reach 70 million people or even 200,000 that you've reached right now, you know, at some point that was just a dream. Like how, I guess I'm just asking, how do you set such a big goal and actually start to work on it when it seems like that is so far away or that's so many people or whatever the, you know, the stories are that come up with that. How have you worked with that? Yeah, I mean, like, for me, it hasn't, I think it just hasn't felt that crazy. What I just said, <laughs> okay, is if you want to help a community, let's help a community. And a community means every person. If we embrace all voices and respect everyone so that all voices are, are heard, that's everyone. 
It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that you omit the people who are loudly screaming at the top of their lungs <laughs> that which you was at the top of yours. It doesn't matter. And that's what's exciting about it is that okay, if we're going to work on social change, we're going to help strengthen India's already beautiful foundation of family into getting children out of institutions and into family-based care. That's got to be everywhere. Yeah. So then it just made sense. Okay, everyone means in the state 70 plus million. Everyone in India means 1.2 billion. Great. We'll set the goal. Leave it. Now let's start on the ground and work. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I mean, the fact is, if you don't let the story get in the way, then you can keep doing your work. So it sounds like you've you've kept the vision in front of you and you just keep plugging away. And a little bit, I mean, it's only been, when did Foster Care India start? So May 18th of 2012. So we're approaching three years on May 18th of this year. Wow. And you've already done some incredible work. Tell me, just give me kind of a, a highlight reel of what you guys have done because I, I read a little bit, but I'm sure there's so much more and I would love to know. Okay. So here's kind of the, the, the heavy hitters, the the really, really exciting things, although everything in between is a big deal. Um, I'll kind of Tarantino it a little bit for you. I'll give you the end, and then we'll go to the beginning and come back through. <laughs> I love that. Um, so right now, we are we have an amazing community center. We're a team of 12 people, and we just added three yesterday, so we're wow. 15 now. Okay. Um, because we've been taking students. We have three new students from the Home Science College who are doing early child care stuff, and it's amazing. So we right now are case managing 366 families in Udaipur who are families that are kinship families, families that are basically taking care of children under duress. We just launched a manifesto that talks about the entire direction of family-based care in India. And it's been endorsed by people from seven states across government, private sector, and across eight countries now. And so that's super exciting. We launched the annual report, as you mentioned before, and we're doing amazing advocacy capacity work, and we have the first foster family almost fully applied, and then we'll be doing the home study with them very soon in the history of the state of Rochester. But the question is, how did we get there? So (laughs) three big things were benchmarks on the way there. The first is when I first hit the ground here, I said, look, I don't know what local culture is all about. Right. I am socialized as American. Yeah, I'm Indian, but how do I find out what's going on? So I contacted Harvard School of Public Health <laughs> through some friends. We got some interns. We got IRB permissions for big research project. Um, that's the internal review board permissions that you need to do legitimate international statistically significant research. Okay. So we did a 650 household study here in Udaipur looking at perceptions of foster care. Wow. We hired local, like, women who work at home and, and students and whatever. And we went to the field and we asked people a 73-question mixed method study looking at people's perceptions of foster care. Wow. From that, we learned that only 3% of Udaipur had ever heard of foster care. Whoa. And so we're like, okay, so now we've got a benchmark. Let's start moving forward. We started doing advocacy work, meeting with the community and everything. And at that same time, I realized that there's no law on foster care. So I was like, okay, you should probably write a law. (laughs) And so I went to the state government and I said, hi, my name's Ian. I'd like to write a law. They were like, you're crazy. (laughs) I said, yeah, I'm 
crazy, but it does change the fact that I'd like to help write a law. And they were like, okie dokie, you can't. And I said, okay. Um, well, what I'll do is I'll sit in front of you, drink your try, chai, and I'll play Angry Birds or um, um, Candy Crush on my phone and wait till you say yes. <laughs> and so for the next two years or so, I just made relationships. Talked with the government, did all that stuff, and lots of people told me foster care would not work in India. And I said, okay, that's your opinion. Um, and we just kept moving forward. I kept working with the community, learning more about what Udaipur needs, the town that we're in, and what Rajasthan, the state, needs. Um, and learned and learned. Um, and eventually, last year, 2014, beginning in 2014, I was named with four other people to the policy drafting committee in Rajasthan for foster care law and policy. Mm. And in July, we notified the first policy on foster care in the history of Rajasthan. It's called the 2014 foster care rules, Rajasthan foster care rules. Holy cow. That's... Yeah, that was good. <laughs> yeah, that was, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good uh, end to your week, I would assume. Holy. Yeah. I that's incredible, um, Ian. Along, of course, but but and it wasn't just me. By no means was it just me. Right. It was a whole group kind of forward-minded, think, think forward-minded people. They got together and said, "Look, the predominant way of care and protection in India right now is orphanages. And if you look at the international law, which is called the UNCRC, United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child, okay, it does the opposite." It says the best place for children is with their biological family when safe and appropriate. Hmm. The second place is with relatives and family as close to their birth culture as possible. And the third is family not known to them. So foster care, adoption, those things, people that are not kith or kin. Yeah, yeah. The last in the continuum of care is institutionalization. Wow. Good. So as we understood that as Foster Care India's the community and everything, it just started unfolding. We got the law passed. UNICEF got on board to help us. An amazing, amazing organization in the UK called Core Assets that does fostering all around the world got behind us to support us as their CSR, their corporate social responsibility. Wow. <laughs> and it just started growing and unfolding. UNICEF just renewed us in November for a two-year project where we're creating a model for kinship foster care, non-kinship foster care, and a community center that's a bridge for people to services that is scalable, repeatable, and sensitive to change that hopefully we can repeat throughout India. Oh, my gosh. And that would be such a, an amazing vehicle then to touch and to start really, you know impacting so many more lives to be able to scale that out right because that's our strength right now and so if we can use our strength to say there's somebody in another state in india saying i really want to do, th do this but i have no idea how to start it then we can say look here's a package we've been figuring out how to start it we've incubated it we've done it here you go come to us we'll lovingly hold hands and walk together mm. to envision this shared goal that's that's awesome it's, I mean, it's kind of like franchising, but in a, in a very kind and gentle way, <laughs> it seems like. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, but that's... you make a good point there as well, because a lot of people don't think that they get scared to say that NGOs and, and not-for-profits should be run like a business. Yeah. But no. in the sense that a business efficiently runs and makes profit when it takes care of its employees 
has a very clear goal and mission and honors what their customers need in a loving way, I believe. Yeah. And so what we're doing is the exact same thing. We are highly professional. We're the, the number one goal is that everyone that touches foster care in India is a family member. And we are we are strict. We are high output. We work hard. We have fun. And we run work efficiently so that we think strategically, like I said before, not for 10 years, but for 10 generations. Mm. And I think, I think that's a really good distinction is that you're not in this just for, you know, the short term, even 10 years doesn't seem like the short term sometimes, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you're creating a legacy of good that's going to carry on and impact your children and your children's children and so on and so forth. But to have that vision, I think just asking ourselves, what is the legacy I want to leave behind? What is the impact that I want to have greater than my, you know, 80 to 100 years on this planet will do? And then how do I go about creating a system that then generates and, you know, continues having this impact long after I'm here? Um, That's a very different vision, I think, than most people have when it's like, how can I get a paycheck to pay for my car and my house and the, and the life that I think I should have? You know, it's just a very distinct <laughs> variation on that, <clears throat> which I love. Um, tell me a little bit more about how you've even crafted this vision or do you have a mission statement for yourself or what, what kind of is that core aspect of you? Where does that come from? Yeah, that's pretty easy, actually. So I've done a number of, like, spiritual courses, different things that kind of helped me look at, you know, who am I and and, and what's my purpose? Yeah. And in one of the courses, the name came to me kind of as my direction and my purpose of in tune, meaning how can I be in, in tune with those things around me? And so that's what I strive to do. That's it, is I want to be in tune with the needs of those around me, the needs that I have, the needs that, that, that fit in between there, the support that I can give, the support that others can give me, and just how can I be in tune with the surroundings and, and, and what, as you talked about, what can be left as a legacy. Mm, I love that. That's that's really cool. And I, I, I think each of us has that little that nugget that resonates deeply. And for me, it's the live your dance or the dance your dance or being in tune or, you know, whatever it is. But um, to be able to then verbalize it, I think, creates just power, this this sense of kind of, okay, this is my essence. This is where I'm in alignment. This is where it all kind of comes together for me. And it obviously is for you too. Um, let me ask you, what what or who is inspiring you these days? Where do you go for inspiration? Gosh, well, obviously, um, my wife is, is a huge inspiration to me. She's an absolutely amazing woman, and so she's a huge inspiration for me. Um, and and there are there are so many people. There's you can find inspiration in anyone, no matter what they're doing. And so that's been really nice is just to look and see. Okay. No matter what the situation looks like, whether it's someone I'm agreeing with, not agreeing with, whatever it looks like, how can I find inspiration from from them? Mm. And so I've been practicing, like actively practicing that. And that's pretty fun. Oh, 
Oh, that's really cool. Absolutely, yeah. If you look for it, it's there, but it's so easy not to. <laughs> um, yeah. So you've talked a lot about your work-life balance. How do you how do you spend your time when you're not at work these days? What do you do that kind of like cultivates the other side of your soul when you're not doing this? Because I'm sure this could be all-encompassing and all-consuming, but it's time for balance. So what do you do when you're not in the work? Yeah, well, I mean, luckily, so I'm, as, as you said before, I'm recently married um, as of almost six months ago. And so that is all-encompassing in a great way. <laughs> um, lots and lots of activities. I also had, as you mentioned, I have been able to develop an amazing community of people. And so we do lots of stuff. Um, like I'm a non-drinker and non-smoker, so we don't do, you know, like, crazy parties, whatever, but we have people over constantly. We go hiking, we make food, we have a great time, board games, card games, those things. Um, I do like coffee very much, so we go to coffee shops and sit and play gin rummy and hang out, card game, this thing and that thing. Um, And yeah, and and spending time with with my wife is is a a big deal to me these days, a really big deal in starting with just such a, a, a solid foundation in a marriage. And, uh, you know, checking myself on the things that I need to do better on and enjoying time together with or, or without uh, others around. Yeah. Uh, it's really great. Oh, that's – well, and it's it's fun to see that too because I remember when you were back in St. Louis, you were kind of a similar hub of activity in that your house was the open door for everyone and come and let's cook Indian food and, and play instruments or, you know, sit around and play games or just chalk and have ch- chai or coffee or tea or whatever. Um, it's really fun to know that you're still creating that atmosphere over there too. And that, that, I mean, you create such a sense of home. So it's not surprising to me that you've now expanded that to everyone around you and that now any person you meet is part of your family. That's, that's beautiful. Um, well, tell me a little bit more, I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but, um, I think people would still be interested for what you'd like to share in terms of your marriage and how that's become a support and, you know, uh, a co-foundation, I guess, for this vision too, because I know both of you are up to really big things. So I can see your marriage being very much a kind of a core for both of you but talk to me more about how do you guys sit down are you very intentional about it or is it just it's happened and it's coalesced and you're excited about it or how has that process been well let me let me give you the quick story here and hopefully this actually becomes a plug for you to get Nargis on sometime I think you'd really enjoy talking to her of course Um, so the story's just it's unbelievable I could not plan the stuff it's just (laughs) insane so um, having not the healthy work-life balance and then starting to get my feet under me, um, I wasn't dating or anything like that. In India, it's not really something that you date very much or whatever, but I was open. There was a longing in me to kind of settle down a little bit in those things. And um, the meeting Nargis was completely just unexpected, which is the best. Um, we met at a child protection conference in Delhi. So she was representing her organization. She has an organization called Child Life Care Society, mm-hmm. uh, where she we, she serves and takes care of by herself a hundred children or more a day in the slum area of South Delhi, mm-hmm. uh, providing uh, out of school children motivation to return to school and working with their parents to 
look at the value of education and um, walking lovingly with them to school applications, those types of things. Wow. Um, and she's an amazing woman where she she was born in the slum area in a, a family of eight, eight brothers and sisters. And her father, who um, drives a, a, a auto rickshaw, which is like a taxi, it's the three-wheeled vehicles, um, had just said, you know, look, my community is not educating children around me, but I believe I should. I'm going to educate my children no matter what. Hmm. And Nargis, when she was 12 years old, looked out in front of her and said, gosh, children are not getting an education. It's, it's my duty to teach them. Wow. And in their one tiny room, she started teaching children. And when she turned 18, 17, 18, she started working for an organization, an NGO. And at 20 years old, she opened her own organization. She called in a bunch of her father's friends and said, I'd like to start something. And, and they gave her some support. And uh, so I met her at this conference, and uh, she doesn't know English, and I didn't know much Hindi. And so when I met her, I was like, ooh, that girl's pretty cute. I should talk to her. And we ended up sitting in the back of the room together, because I arrived late. I had flown in from Udaipur, because I was speaking on foster care and adoption. They'd flown me in for this conference to speak. Okay. And she arrived late, because she had taken a wrong bus, and she showed up, and, and she and her sister came in the back, and there were two seats right um, and so we just started scribbling back and forth and writing things that I could in English and Hindi and everything. Um, at the end, she really respected Foster Care India. She thought, okay, I really want to advance my organization. I'm really interested that this guy didn't think of me as any less than him or whatever. You know, she was intimidated. I'm wearing a three-piece suit. I'm speaking in English. I'm at this conference. They've called me. I'm on the, the panel and everything. Um, and she thought of herself, I'm from this small NGO, whatever. And um, so she said, okay, great, I want to learn from you. And we exchanged information, and she thought that was the end of it. Done. But I was coming through Delhi a month later, and I called her, and she was out of town. She teaches dance and takes dance crews all over uh, India. So she had her dance crew at a competition in another state. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if this relates with you at all. No, not at all, obviously. <laughs> She had a dance crew in another state, and she was like, I didn't know why, but I was really sad that you were in Delhi and, and surprised that I had called her, um, and I wasn't. And she said, okay, I don't know why, but I'm going to go visit him. And Udaipur and Delhi are 12 hours away. Oh, wow. So she, her sister, and her board member three weeks later came to Udaipur to learn from foster care India. Okay. So she had no idea. In India, it's almost all arranged marriages. She never <laughs> thought of me romantically in any way. She just came down to learn because she said, I want to better myself, and I want to learn what he's doing uh, so I can maybe take it back and do it at Child Life Care Society. So after she visited me, when she left, her sister and her, her board member said, that guy likes you. And she was like, no, 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 not possible. <laughs> we started talking on the phone. And about two months later, we started talking. You, you know how it goes. We start talking for five minutes, then ten minutes, then one hour. And then, then many hours, yeah. And then my Hindi was getting better and better and better. Like, we were able to talk. So two months later, I was flying through Delhi again. I forget where I was headed. Um, but I had a 24-hour layover or something. And she said, well, I've been telling my family so much about you just in kind of a respect way. You should come meet them. I was like, okay. And she had told me about the amazingness of her father and how in the midst of a community that doesn't educate children, he had stood up and educated his children and, and all this stuff. Yeah. And I thought about it, <coughs> and I was like, Nargis, if 
families as amazing as they say, as you say they are. I'd like to marry you. And she was shocked, like freaked out. She's just like, what? Like she couldn't believe it. And so she took some time when she thought about it and she just couldn't believe it. And she's like, okay, but really didn't know, you know. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's talk about this. (laughs) So I showed up two months later. I, I walked into her home, and her mother, who is a very traditional Muslim woman, you know, wears wears a, um, a headscarf and everything. She's never touched another man, you know, other than her husband. She, I walked in, and five minutes later, she gave me a, a hug and said, welcome home, son. And I said, okay, that's it. So I asked her father. I went to the roof, and I, in my broken, broken Hindi, I said, um, uh, I don't know why this is happening, but... Um, I can't live without your daughter. I'd like to marry her, and I'd like your your blessing in, in doing so. Um, and so we then talked, since they're a Muslim family, and it's a very difficult thing for a Muslim girl to marry outside of the community. And so we talked and talked and talked, um, and he said, you know what, I'll pray about it. And he prayed about it. He went to the mosque. He, he, he prayed, he prayed, he talked to family members, etc. And we learned that his family members would not support him. Um, And he came back to me after two months and he said, I didn't educate my daughter to just go into a house and serve her husband's family and not be able to continue the work that she's doing. I will fight my community for your happiness. Wow. And so when we married, we had only met in person seven times. I had held her hand once, never hugged her. And our families came together here in, in, in India, in Delhi. We did a Muslim ceremony. And I told her father, I'm not going to convert, but I'm very spiritual, and your daughter can always practice her religion in my home, in our home. And so as it moved forward from there, we married, and we just <clears throat> have bridged all of these amazing cultural, religious, caste yeah. boundaries language, everything. And we've had our struggles, no question about it. Uh, Definitely, as we've just learned about each other, we've learned about how things work and how they look. Um, But we could not be happier, and it makes me stronger and stronger every day. I I don't even know what to say. That's awesome. (laughs) Oh, man. And it's what I love about both your vision for foster care India and for your marriage has been, I mean, kind of disproving the odds or whatever you want to call it, disproving the, the integrated boundaries, um, and over and over again, proving that it doesn't matter. I know what I want. And, and I'll sit here and drink chai and play angry birds until you say yes, (laughs) which is, I mean, gosh, what else can you do when you know that you're supposed to be doing and being where you are? So that's, ah, that is beautiful. Ian, you're amazing. Um, Well, we're just about out of time, but let me ask you my last few questions, which I love to ask. Um, What are you most grateful for today? Oh, my gosh. Honestly, this talk. This talk is fantastic. Oh, well, I agree. This is definitely starting my day off on such a high note. Oh, Um, well, and let's um, real before we totally sign off, where can we find you and your programs online and and everything that you're up to how can people reach out to you or connect 
Great. So the two places that are best are just on our website, period, which is fostercareindia.org. Okay. And so we'd love people to visit there anytime. And then one of the biggest things people can do uh, with us is follow us on Facebook as well. And on Facebook, it's just Foster Care India as, as well, just okay. Foster Care India. And if people can like it and follow it and share it, I love to show people the kind of fun aspects of this work as well on the Facebook page. We show pictures of us like having sports days and having a good time. But I also ask questions to people as well. If we're moving forward with something, and I'm like, okay, what does the community think? I'll ask the world what people think. Oh, cool. And so those are the two places on the website and on Facebook. Great. Okay, and I'll put that in the in the, in the the podcast notes so that people can click through for sure. Um, and to finish it off, this, this concept of living your dance, which is, you know, what this podcast is about and what my book is about, um, what, to, what to you would be your definition of living your dance? So I, I thought about this a lot before we, we had the, the talk here. And Nargis and I actually did a couple's dance at a wedding um, two weeks ago. And it was my first time with doing any type of choreographed dance or whatever. Okay. And in the middle of it, I was scared out of my mind. <laughs> I was like, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? All that stuff. <laughs> but the thing about dance that I never knew, I watched like, you know, dance shows and I loved watching beautiful auditions and like dance can move you to tears. There's no question about it. The emotion that flows through all of the the things between the lines that yeah. happen during dance is just amazing. But what really hit me as, as Nargis and I were preparing for this, as we were dancing is it didn't really matter what we were doing. We were expressing joy and we were expressing this like sense of, okay, we want to connect with others and this is the way we're doing it. And it allowed us to represent ourselves in a beautiful way. It allowed us to stand strong and confidently and be like, okay, this is us in front of you. And what we're trying to do is say, let's hold hands together. And it allowed people around us to feel the emotions we were feeling. And so all of those things together, I mean, living your dance makes perfect sense to me. Oh, I love that. Oh, man, Ian, you're just filled with good nuggets and I'm so grateful that we got to connect today. It's been too long and I hope that we'll continue the conversation and maybe someday hopefully I could come see your work in India firsthand and, and come visit you guys. That would be amazing. So anyway, thank you so much for sharing your story and for just spreading your light and staying with the vision because you're inspiring so many more people than I think you even realize beyond India, you know, on your social media and through just the way that you've lived your life from day one. It's been, it's been a beautiful unfoldment and I'm so excited for you, but thank you so much for being on the show today. It's really been a pleasure. Well, thank you. This was an amazing opportunity and I really, really appreciate the idea of living your dance and uh, I have to recycle what you just said. I bet you're inspiring, inspiring so many people that you have no idea about. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, this is a great way to start off Monday morning or end your Monday. <laughs> and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day. We'll talk soon. All right. All right. Thanks.
Well, there you have it. Thanks again for listening and be sure to like, share, and comment on the podcast or around social media. Hashtag live your dance and look forward to more episodes coming your way. Have a great day and be sure to live your dance. Live your dance.